Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Erin Velarde, the founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead, the nation's largest and most diverse training program for women to run for office and win. She first launched Vote Run Lead as Vice President of Programs and Communications at the White House Project. We speak with Erin today about Vote Run Lead's work to help train female candidates to run and win, some of the barriers they face along the way, and how society benefits when we have more women in elected office and positions of power. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me. Vote Run Lead started out as a political training program of the White House Project during President Bush. I was actually surprised to see that connection. What was the catalyst for its creation at that point? So the White House Project was actually an NGO not affiliated with the White House. Um, In fact, the name, cleverly, was to really talk about how we had never had a woman in the White House. So it was started by a woman named Ruth Wilson, who was the creator of Take Your Daughter to Work Day and um, someone with just a strong cultural pulse on the conversations that need to be pushed, you know, hence Take Your Daughter to Work Day, hence the White House Project name. And it was a first of its kind. It's a cross-sector Um, women's leadership nonprofit, you know, before the conversations on women's leadership started happening, I would say almost a decade later, she started it in 1999. And one of the first things she did was a a 1-800 hotline to vote for 20 women who could be president. Um, And so really someone who just really pushed the conversation around, around gender and leadership development. Um, And and I consider her my political mother. And, And yes, I was a part of it. I was actually hired as an intern and then got a job right after college at the White House Project. How supportive was the Bush administration in supporting the White House Project's goals? You know, um, you... Actually, I think under Bush 2, under Bush 1, you had... um, Under Bush 2, you actually had a very diverse cabinet, both gender and racially diverse cabinet. Um, And so... There was, I don't want to say the word lip service, that's not the right phrase, but there was um, the sort of beginnings of recognition of gender diversity in some of the highest levels. And that I think that, you know, these are some of the tipping points that I think we can look back on um, and say that was sort of the beginning of some of the conversations around women as CEOs. It was some of the conversations around the, the abysmal number of women governors, actually, which both CEOs and governors have not really raised uh, in their numbers that much. But it was a time when people started to just simply count, right, and say, oh, wow, we're at seven governors out of 50. We're at, you know, 8% women CEOs. Um, And one of the things that the White House Project did as a nonprofit was really look across sectors. So we were able to make critical analysis of the private sector, uh, politics, and then what was happening in, in culture and media and television, what were the shows, you know, all these things are connected in how we aspire to be leaders, how girls and young women, especially young women of color, aspire to leadership, to really be able to see themselves in these positions. Um, but but it was, like I said, it was a little bit ahead of its time in, in you know, making the shift, I think, from 
and I'm going to say this broadly, you know, but making the shift around uh, women's empowerment from a, a sort of victimization, you know, as being on the sort of uh, tougher end of things towards a leadership perspective is that actually women's as leaders as part of these solutions and, and sort of imagining a new way. Um, that was really, I think, what we were pushing at the White House Project is just to get that idea that the resources for women's empowerment needed to also be going to our leadership development. Were there any quantitative goals that you set out to achieve in terms of women's representation in, ele- in elected office? And how did it compare to representation in other sectors? Yeah, it is. Um, we did a big research project um, that basically, gosh, um, I'm trying to think of what year it was. I want to say it was like the mid-2000s. Um, and it looked across 10 sectors, military, academia, sports, um, corporations, private corporations, politics, um, And really what we found was that in private sectors um, and in uh, even public institutions, it matched, right? Women's leadership was roughly, you know, in the teens. Some places it was a little higher, like in the nonprofit sector, maybe it was a little bit higher in the women college president sector, maybe a touch lower in, you know, when it came to the military or religion. But um, it really was just, we were sort of stuck hovering in the teens for women's leadership at the highest levels. And it showed us that we had this problem across sectors, right? That it wasn't unique. So today, translating that, you know, fast forward to 2020, uh, as we're having these conversations, we're looking at places like technology, where we were hopeful that sort of, you know, a real merit-based kind of industry would see a different kind of uh, result. But, you know, it's, and you know this, it's critical to the systems that who sets up those systems that it creates the infrastructure around the diversity and the valuing of different perspectives in your organization and your entity. Since your founding, Vote Run Lead has trained over 15,000 women to run for office. Was there an event or time that generated a tipping point in support for your organization and its efforts? So we trained about 15,000 women with the White House Project and through Vote Run Lead in the last five years when I took it out on its own uh, with some of my co-founders who were my colleagues and consultants um, at the uh, White House Project days, we are, I think, now close to 40,000 women trained because of the use of technology to supplement the in-person training we've we've been doing around the country. You know, to speak frankly, the tipping point has come within the last two years. The sector, the sort of philanthropic sector, if you will, around women's political empowerment, even post-2016, was very uh, Democrat-leaning, you know, looking for sort of resistance groups or partisan groups. They saw big bumps. I think some of the smaller nonprofits, um, some of the nonpartisan uh, groups, it took a little bit of lag time for the philanthropic sector to catch up to, you know, the sort of small dollar donor sector. But what we did see was we saw women getting resourced. We saw women candidates getting resourced in a new way. Um, And so we have grown 400% in five years. So I I can't discount that. But I really do think that the push has come in the last, you know, the election of 2018, where you saw the greatest diversity of women in racial and ethnic diversity, but also in young women, you know, these young women getting elected. Um, And I do think a sort of a rebirth or a, a reimagination of, this conversation around gender and leadership, which is that women for the sake of women is actually not what we're after, right? We're after this combination of representation and radical thinking, right? That we are hoping to empower women, to train them to run for office who are going to imagine the world in a different way. 
as well as serve as role models for girls and other young women to see themselves in public office. Um, and so I, I think that's, there's, that's really been um, the work that we're trying to achieve. And I emphasize trying because uh, it's a, you know, it's a journey. But I do, I think in the last two years, we were able to sort of see and feel and taste something different in our elected officials with the 2018 election. Vote Run Lead's mission is to train barrier-breaking women to unleash their political power, run for office, and transform American democracy. Can you tell me how you define barrier-breaking, and what ways do you wish for these women to transform democracy? Um, and we, we are doing this discovery right now as sort of what that means for us, but um, <clears throat> you know, I think it means understanding the ecosystem of democracy, understanding the structures and the rules of democracy, not being limited by the way that it's always been done, um, but instead really looking for new ways to think not only about, you know, it could be as simple as sort of campaign finance. It, it could be as easy as things like rank choice voting, uh, which as you know, we know when you're able to rank a ballot and you're Put your preferences, you know, think about a crowded Democratic primary right now. If you could vote one, two, three, four, you end up actually with more diverse bodies, both racially and ethnically um, and gender wise. And you end up with like twice as many women. Um, you're twice as likely to have a woman mayor in cities that use ranked choice voting. So women who are willing to think about how to restructure the system, about how things were not only are right now, but how they were built and why they were built that way. And you know, I think that there's a bit of sort of uh, barrier breaking in the sense that oftentimes, just simply enough for the, on the representation side, it's the first time that a woman has sat in the seat. It's the first time that a black woman has sat in that seat. It's the first time that a, a queer woman has sat in that seat. It's the first time that a woman under 40 has sat in that seat. Um, and so the responsibility also that comes with that is something that we want our, our leaders to be aware of and to, to embrace um, the opportunity that comes with being a first. What criteria exist, if any, to identify and or prioritize support for a potential candidate? For example, are there any platform positions that might disqualify a potential candidate from working with you? I mean, I can see how for many people, just being a member of the Republican Party these days would likely be something that would characterize a woman female candidate as being against democracy or at least democratic norms and structures? So our resources are available to anyone, you know, especially being online. And so that's men, women. We've had, you know, we've got quite a few folks that also show up who we're, we're, we don't say no to people who want to get a political education. We definitely do not say no to women who want to get a political education. Um, and so we work very hard to make sure that the rooms that people are entering in are rooms that are sort of living manifestations of our values. Um, and that you experiencing Vote Run Lead is a space where you can learn and grow and journey. And the good thing about being nonpartisan is we are not beholden to either party. And so we are able to have tough conversations about what is the future of the Republican Party. Following the 2018 election, we had a really, really, I would say, we had a phenomenal day-long event about five days after the election um, on Veterans Day, co-sponsored with some women veterans organizations. And that actually was where the original squad photo was taken of Ilhan Omar, Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and um, Ayanna Presley um, as congresswoman-elect at the time. They were in D.C. They streamed in live. Um, it was really remarkable. But dare I say, probably the most uh, evocative conversation was the four women Republicans talking about 
their desire to transform inside the Republican Party, three of whom were women of color, two of whom were immigrants or child of immigrants, um, you know, first generation. And so there, here you have a recognition of exactly what you were just talking about, that at the, at the very national level, there's a pretty obvious and disgusting sort of strategy, right, of divisiveness, of, you know, these things are intentional, of making democracy more inaccessible, right? Um, so, but here you have right in front of you a handful of women who are trying to figure out um, for values that they hold dear, like small government, you know, low interference. Uh, one woman talked about how she, you know, her father fled a, a, a dictatorship, right? And have very serious conversations with themselves about their their viewpoints around government. But of course, don't see the Republic, like, don't feel there's a place for them inside the Republican Party right now. And so I think one of the things that we're asking of our Republican sisters is to say, what are you doing actively to transform uh, the party from within or from outside? Um, is there a creation of another wing, right? We saw, we've seen the Tea Party, we've seen the sort of progressive left. There is opportunities in this country to create a different kind. We're seeing the power of the Working Families Party, especially here in the tri-state area where I am in New York. Um, there's opportunity for you to build the kind of party infrastructure that you deserve that is also anti-racist, that is, you know, that is, um, you know, that can live the values of who you are as individuals. There's, I would say that is a very new dialogue that is happening. It is a very fearful dialogue. There's a lot of risk for those women. A lot of my colleagues and friends uh, on the right took private sector jobs. They got out um, uh, 2016 of sort of, uh, partisan politics. And you know, there's, there's a real sort of reckoning that has to happen inside the Republican party. And then the other thing I'll say is that at the national and local level, the Republican parties are not the same, right? You have, uh, as you get to the local level, partisanship has a lot less hold on people, has a lot less meaning. You're voting for your neighbors. Um, you may run as an independent, um, although you are say a left-leaning person because your district has been red for the last 40 years. So the choices that people make about their own, um, that women make about their own partisan identification, VRL is not going to tell you what to think, you know, where to go, what to wear. That's that's not what we're here for. We're here to create an environment that uh, of us standing true in our values, but making space for people who are still learning and aspiring and journeying um, on their own. If Republican candidates are not feeling safe or valued aligned with their party, what role, if any, does Vote Run Lead have in nurturing an exploration away from that party to, for example, say the Democratic Party? You know, I think the, like I said, that's that's really for people to do their own self-exploration on, that that is, you know, is that an option for you? What would that look like for you? Absolutely. I, I also should share that we are getting very few and far between uh, women who are identifying as Republican who are coming to program, especially in the ratio, right? Because the surge has really been on the left. And I wouldn't even say on the left because so many of the women, like more than a third are coming without a political identification. So this idea that party is the lens by which we should be looking at women's leadership is also one of the things that we need to just put to the side because the structures that have been party politics have actually not really served women, period, full stop, Democrat or Republican. Yes, one may be better than the other, look no further than the DCCC saying that insurgent candidates, you know, that current, you know, post 2018, when um, the rule was that the party infrastructure, basically consultants couldn't work with insurgent candidates, consultants couldn't work with the AOCs of the world. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done on both sides. But 
that is, and so we're, we're not getting a ton of women who are a, to subscribing to a political party, say, in the application right now. We have a, a whole lot of women who are really having a tough conversation around identifying with the party. Do I have to run with a party? Um, why do I need a party to run? Um, and the understanding of political resources and what the party can deliver for you. Um, how do I attain the political resources of the party, but not sort of sell my soul um, in doing that? So how do I maintain my insider outsider status? So that those are some of the things we're training on because the sort of to assume that the parties are sort of moving at the same pace that women candidates and women leaders are moving is, is the wrong assumption, right? We see more women who are running uh, against incumbent Democrats. Uh, we have um, a handful of women that have been doing that. And we, we're really at the local level. So you're seeing folks who are running for state legislature and for city councils where, you know, the neighbor to neighbor strategy is really what it's about. Aside from training, are there other services or assistance that you offer p- potential candidates? For example, do you help them fundraise, solicit volunteers or staff? Anything else? Um, so as a 501c3 prior, to, you know, we're, we're really doing the education, right? Um, PACs and C4s and sort of the tax status of us remaining as a charitable organization. Once someone has declared, they cannot receive any special attention, right? Because um, those are just the laws of the land. Um, and it's so, but anything that is available publicly is of course available to all candidates. And so really in that sort of pre-declaration uh, phase, or if you have declared because, you know, your race happens to be six months away and you're like, I just, I just filed the paperwork, I'm going to do this, but I need to know. Um, we're really giving you soup to nuts on how to win, a, a, how to run a winning campaign, how to, you know, do that, um, do that self-exploration around the issues that you care about to really sh- tell your story. I think one of our superpowers that Vote Run Lead is that we are really able to um, allow women to tap into their expertise. The experiences of their lives make them an expert in navigating the, their community to see and own the skills that they have used um, in somewhat non-political, you know, often sort of non-traditional ways that are exactly the right skills for public office and how to translate that into both a, a personal mindset um, that they're the right person for the job, um, which then really allows them to flourish as candidates in public speaking, as candidates in fundraising, you know, as a sort of resiliency that is required around campaigning. Um, we do in-person trainings um, everywhere and every corner of America. Um, of course, that is a bit on hold with coronavirus, but we run a workshop or a training almost once every six weeks, uh, you know, either in person somewhere in the country or uh, online. We do uh, definitely, there's a coaching aspect available, sort of leadership coaching for women to pick up the phone and get in touch with one of our 100 trainers across the country. There's a private Facebook group with a couple thousand women who are, you know, actively sharing tips and asking questions. Um, but our our sort of, our, our sweet spot is really the the workshopping of, uh, okay, tell me how, because I've, I've jumped in or I've made that decision to, to explore this for myself and I'm going to need the, the steps along the way. Is there a fee to any of these additional services like coaching? Most of them are free. Um, someone, yeah, almost. Yeah. For someone who's still undecided about whether to run, there is essentially no risk to jump in and explore. Is that right? Yeah, 
no risk. And in fact, right now you can do it from the comfort of your home, right? So so there might you're going to find on the website like 10 things to think about when deciding to run for office, both a worksheet and a webinar from one of our trainers. You're going to find um, something called the 90-day challenge, which is um, 30 actions in 90 days for you to essentially figure out what office you want to run for, to map your networks. 30 steps, you know, to have 15 coffees is one of those steps, right? Um, now, the, the sort of quiet rule is you don't actually have to have the coffee, but once you sort of make one coffee date, that naturally happens, right? Sort of network within your political community to do some, you know, self-exploration, uh, to make your Twitter handle, you know, Aaron Velarde 4, you know. So just really practical stuff um, that women can do and really personal stuff that women can do to make sure that they're, you know, they're sort of leading with their best self when they go to file that paperwork. How do you handle when more than one woman is running for the same position, for the same elected office position? Is there a process that you engage into prioritizing, devoting more or different resources to one or the other? Um, I want to think, no, I mean, like all that kind of stuff, like that, this idea that like, like that's the kind of stuff that like we just don't do, you know, it's like, great. You are both, I mean, there's two women who were running for Congress. I had, I had individual conversations with the both of them. I basically gave them the same advice. You know, it was like, you, you have to know that you are the best person for the job. Otherwise, the voters are going to know, know that you don't think that, right? Um, and so what does that mean for you? They had very different backgrounds. One had a national security background. One was a, you know, well-established activist and leader. And so, like, I want to create a world where, my alumni are running against each other for all 519,000 seats in this country, right? Because I know that my alumni are doing this sort of, you know, head and heart, right? They're coming to public service with both the public and community-oriented approach to this and the service-oriented approach uh, to their leadership. And so the more leaders that I can create for that, the better. And if they happen to live in the same district, then what a pleasure it is that those voters get to choose. Now, I wish they would also run in a district where it was ranked choice voting and so that voters didn't have to choose, but it could instead rank them. And that's the kind of democracy we want to create. That's the kind of those are the kind of candidates that we want to um, to thrive. You know, but I'm thinking of, you know, Ilhan Omar's seat, one of my favorite alumni, Senator Patricia Torres Ray, who is the first uh, Latina in the state Senate in Minnesota, was also put her hat in the ring. They are good friends. Um, they ran a beautiful campaign. There was another woman in the race as well. It was, you know, more than cordial, right? It was respectful in how they did that primary. And they remain friends to this day. They are like in the front of the marches. You know, they're standing next to each other. They are uh, both in the fight to, you know, sort of reimagine policing in Minnesota right now. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, and she's still in the state Senate. Um, and she's, it's just, you know, they were both part of a program we did just a couple weeks ago on women leaders who were really on the front lines of the uprising and, and, uh, um, and the protests in Minneapolis. So that, that's really the kind of environment shift that we want to make. To what extent is Vote Run Lead nurturing a mutually supportive environment for running rather than a competitive one? So, for example, rather than seeing other candidates as potential competitors, each woman candidate sees another as a potential collaborator to hire should they win, or a leader to whom they would serve should they lose. I think we have this, um, we don't think it's a zero-sum game at Vote Run Lead, right? Like the, the idea that the pie is infinite, 
right? That there's enough power to be shared and leadership to be shared. And what that looks like, of course, you know, will fit the system that it's in. But so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure we're encouraging people to be friends, but that friendships, you know, like two women in New York have started their own podcast because they met, in, you know, at the training. Lauren Underwood, who's in Congress, found a bunch of campaign staff at her Chicago training because when you're in a room with Vote Run Lead, you are, there isn't like the, the pie, there is enough for all of us and you are enough as an individual. And that energy that I think my co-founders really live and breathe, um, that I try to live and breathe, is the energy that we're also trying to sort of put into our democracy. Is that like, we can do this differently, we can think about this differently. The divisions, the, the sort of siphoning off of, you know, this resource or that, it doesn't we can we can do all of it differently, um, and it starts with our individual behavior and, and the support of other women. When we do our speeches, I mean, women get standing ovations, but that is after we have been like tough on them to say, Mm-mm, "Sit down, start over." Nope, you can't use your paper. You know, nope, I didn't feel it. Go back and do it again. You know, so there is that um, there is that, that that critical aspect, um, but there is also that really supportive, sort of flourishing aspect to our training. I think that. Um, that, that's really what the sort of community of the vote run lead leadership and trainer leadership is, is all about. You stated earlier that you won't tell a woman what to wear or how to position themselves. So how do you help a candidate identify her strengths, elevate and communicate them to their potential voters? Yeah. So, I mean, in the sense of, you know, like you don't have to wear the uniform, right? You don't have to wear the uniform of pearls and a suit. You know, if you are comfortable like, but we, of course, still give advice around, you know, body language and professionalism, right? Like, get, you want to wear jeans? Great. Get a pair of, like, dark blues, you know? <laughs> they, they sort of have a nice crisp effect, like, don't, don't you know, but if you don't, if you want to wear your tattered jeans, you can do that too, right? Um, the, the programming is called Run As You Are. The curriculum is called Run As You Are. Um, and it's this idea that you don't have to transform yourself into fitting into this political mold. So the idea that you have to talk in this rigid way where you list your policies out and you list your resume out. You know, we have a st- work a storytelling approach of a curriculum that was written by documentarians, you know, on how to create emotional resonance with your audience and how to take them on a journey of where they're imagining you in this leadership position. Ideally, the story you're talking about is you doing something leaderly, Right. And, and seeing you do that and getting that sort of emotional resonance to go, oh, I trust this person to do what they did in this situation when they represent me in the state house. Because that, that's what you're building with voters is trust, right? And, and that's different from a transactional, I want your vote, I'll do this for you. It's like, I trust that I'm going to do the right thing when I get in there. And tr- so trust me with your vote. And then, you know, there, we do do some of a, a little bit of just... Um, what works for women. So you'll, you'll, you will see a slide that says, you know, I'm doing it in this call, just like, I'm sorry. Um, you know, those, because those things can often take away from our, uh, our strength and what we're saying. And those things are often learned behavior of how to keep ourselves small. So in that sense that, you know, we'll give advice. Uh, but you know, I have one trainer who, you know, sort of says, say whatever, you, you know, F the patriarchy. This is our, this is the language of women. Go ahead and say it. Right. And I, and that's her perspective. So we're just giving women room. We're giving women room to explore as opposed to being boxed into a certain look and a certain type. So John Freeman, a uh, neuroscientist, neuropsychologist, his lab and others who have used his mouse tracker technology have shown that 
women candidates who display more overtly feminine characteristics and traits or are more likely to win. Do you provide this information to help candidates decide for themselves to what level they want to play up or play down their femininity and to conform to traditional gender roles in order to optimize their chance of success? I, I'm not familiar with that study and we haven't used that one particularly. I, um, I do know of some quiet research that was done around negotiation. And uh, I often make a joke about this, that one of the things that came out of the negotiation research was that, uh, you know, if women shake their hair in the negotiation, they're more likely to, most often they're negotiating with men. Men will want to give them what they want, which I find, I, I sort of have to laugh and sort of a little chuckle you know, and often the room will chuckle uh, if, I, if I'm sharing that tidbit. And so I think what we're sharing there and what we're trying to share there is that there are definitely tricks and tools you can use with your audience, right? For example, we do talk about how nodding, right? Women will nod along in a conversation, even if they're not agreeing, men will not nod. Um, so there is, you know, conversation about some of the cues we want to give off or cues we don't want to give off. But at the end of the day, simply, you have to run as you are. You, if, if a sort of feminine look is not your look, then that is not going to work for you. That, that sort of trickery or response you want from the voter is going to be overridden by the fact that you are just not being your authentic self. And there's going to feel something off to the voter because there's something off for you. And that's the, that's the translation that's going to happen. So you know, while we are providing, you know, some anecdotes and some research about sort of, you know, rolling up your sleeves is, is good for men and women, right? It gives you literally the effect of rolling up your sleeves, you know, you know, a good, a good campaign uniform is the dark jeans, a blazer rolled up, you know, a, you know, a clean sort of t-shirt underneath and some simple jewelry, right? That's a good, easy uniform that you can also purchase at a, you know, a Target or a thrift store, right? That isn't going to break the bank for people. Um, so there might be some advice there, but honestly, it is not the main focus. The main focus is to figure out what works for you, what you're comfortable in. I mean, I remember first starting out and, you know, like feeling I had to wear a suit and I couldn't physically move correctly in my own body in, in this suit. And so there's a whole group of women who just don't wear suits. Done. There's a whole group of women I know under probably now under 45 that just never have, never will. Um, and that's, that's just, that's the way it is. And then you see people like, you know, some of the younger women in Congress who recognize their youth and that, and therefore with their clothes have, I think, kind of counterbalanced some of it, right. And have a very, a somewhat traditional clothing, right. And they're in their suit wearing. Um, so these are choices that, that people have to make individually, but you, you have to do it with the comfort of your own skin. What advice do you offer about how to address sexism and the characterization of w women candidates? Um, there's all, all sorts of advice, you know, essentially when the Me Too stuff, you know, when the Me Too stuff came out, you know, when, you know, we definitely talk about the uh, barriers and opportunities research, a group out of, um, Boston, the Barberly Family Foundation has been producing tons of fantastic research around, um, you know, this idea of likability. We talk about how when the media, um, you know, uh, ask questions about, uh, things that if you are flagging that this feels sexist to you, then this is sexist. Right. That's that's the um, if you are flagging that you are being called out because you are a woman and also a black person, then you need to flag that. Right. Because um, and the old research from when I first started at White House Project was to downplay, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was downplay that you're a woman or downplay that you're uh, you know, a woman of color. But that is so silly. Right. And so now 
Uh, and I think this research came out of Women's Media Center, maybe. Maybe it's now about five, 10 years old. You have to hit back. You have to hit back. You have to call it out and you have to say, you know, that doesn't pass the smell test for me. Are you asking? Can you can you elaborate? Are, are you asking my opponent those same questions? Are you asking me this because I'm a mom and a parent? Uh, you know, are you asking my um, are you asking me about my dating life because I'm a young woman? Um, or I'm not going to answer those kind of questions because that reeks of sexism. You standing up for yourself is modeling how you're going to stand up for the community. You downplaying sexism or downplaying racism on your campaign because you're trying to get elected is not going to pass the smell test with voters. So what role does feminism play in the mission or work of Vote Run Lead? It's, it's all feminism. I mean, it is still a pretty radical idea to try to get women into power, right? So I don't know that we, I don't know that I have to ask my other you know, trainers across the country um, that if someone has asked them, you know, I'm going to use the word feminist in my literature. Um, some women do. I don't know that we've ever coached anybody to say that or to not say that again, like the labeling is not for us to sort of to give them. But I do think the women coming through Vote Run Lead know the responsibility of uh, the moment that we're in historically, the need to even do a lot of that sort of self-exploration around their own feminism, um, around what it means to be an intersectional feminist. I mean, I'm doing that now pretty much every day, right? And sort of what's happening in the world on uh, the connections between white supremacy and the patriarchy and feminism and the, you know, uh, and black lives, right. And the sanctity of black life. So I think it's an on, I, you know, it's, a, it's sort of an ongoing journey, not an endpoint. And, and for women who want to use it, they, they use it, but in the sort of candidacy training, you know, I don't know that that has come up as a, as a word per se, that we have like built a module or anything like that around, you know, again, I think it is, it has to have, if it has the emotional resonance for you as an individual, then put that everywhere you want to put it, right? And we talk a lot about how you have to trust yourself as a candidate, especially on stuff like that, because campaigners, the, the people who are like sort of paid campaign staff, they are living in an old world around politics. And so they're going to give you advice on like putting the suit on or, you know, don't say that word. And so if that is, you have to trust yourself to push back in places like that when you might get advice from politicos and operatives to do something different. So that's where some of that tension I've definitely seen. What are some ways that you've seen your training generate shifts in the women candidates you've trained? It's, it has both sides. It's sort of that barrier opportunity. It's that transition like when the woman who has sort of entered the training uh, leaves the training knowing that she's the best person for the job. It's that switch, it's that mental switch or affirmed that she is the best person for the job and that she's actually leaving with the tools to then go tell her you know, potential voters exactly why she is the best person for that job. I think that has been the, that, that, that mindset shift, that transition, you, you physically see it in people, their shoulders relax, their voice gets stronger. Um, they do not need that piece of paper to say the speech. You can see them seeing whatever story they're telling in their own mind. You know, their body language is more confident. And that, that is the thing that is, I think, the through line for a, attending a vote run lead training is that affirmation. And then seeing that affirmation sort of come alive in, in somebody's body language and, some, and their voice and sort of light bulb moment. Because all women, and to, vary, to varying degrees, some of us have this more than others, you know, have, have sort of said, like, you don't belong here you're not the right person for this. You are, um, you don't have the right skills for this kind of background. You can't hack it in this environment. You know, what are you doing here? 
Uh, so there's a lot of that that we have to undo. That's the amazing part of this work, actually. What have you seen has been the driving forces for women to decide to run for office? Are they motivated because they're trying to build something where there's a North Star guiding, guiding them towards that? Or more because there's a gap or an unmet need that they have that they want to address? Yes, yes. And the North Star could be that the North, for some, the North Star could be that, oh my God, there's literally no woman on my council or there's one woman on my council. I have to help her. I have to join up. Right. But the, if you dig a little bit deeper than that, and I would say that's a fairly new thing that women are also speaking very quite honestly about like, no, I do want more women in public office. So I need to be that woman. But also this guy has been here for 20 years and he has not done enough for my community. So a lot of times it is, and especially in the recent history, people just popping up and going, the local government, the state government is not moving fast enough. They're not bold enough in what's happening. They're not mirroring the progress in my community. They're just not of the times, um, if I can speak broadly. And a lot of times, especially post-2016, you know, when women started to look at their local councils, it was, I mean, these guys have been on there 30, 40 years in some places, you know, and have very little to show for it. Not, I'm not saying all, right? But, uh, you know, I, th- that is a common theme that I am seeing. Of. But yes, there's, a, there's always that North Star. I mean, and the research tells us this, right? That women jump into this arena because they want to get something done. And that very much holds through to today. Have you been able to track and translate candidate participation in your program to delivering better results once they're in office? So, for example, more proposed bills or better outcomes for the communities they represent? Yes. And if there are any funders out there, this is what I need the big money for, um, an, an academic partner to do this. But um, some some deeper research, I, and I, I have a piece in Ms. Mag, on MsMagazine.com around the effect of women in the state legislatures. So if you're looking at places where you saw a, a rise in the state legislatures in 2018, predominantly of Democratic women, um, they um, passed their budgets on time. They um, legislated on um, common sense gum reform. Um, they put a lot of climate change, so I guess anti-climate change, <laughs> what's the right way to say that? Climate policy got passed. Um, minimum wage got raised where we know when, um, women make up a majority of minimum wage workers. Paid leave is huge um, at the state legislative level right now being pushed by women. If you look at um, Nevada, the state with um, actually 51 or 2% women, they passed the Trust Women Act. Reproductive justice was protected in places like Minnesota, New York, Illinois, Colorado, Washington, the places where you are seeing, you know, 35, 41% women led the legislature, um, the function and the business of government is getting done. And the agenda of, you know, the business, the agenda of that, of, of those functions has been, I would say, I would say leaning on feminist policy. So we're getting there. So we've come to the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a set of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything. What gives you hope? Young women, like early 20s women are, they're giving me all, all the feels right now. The pace of which they want change is is a remarkable. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? In the political realm, we have to be passing the anti-trafficking laws that are, have greater teeth 
and electing officials and asking our elected officials about anti-trafficking. We have to be doing it, you know, with a, with an intersectional feminist lens too, around indigenous uh, and Native American women and girls, around the the sort of the connectedness to the labor market. Um, so that is that is something I would love to see as a, a greater light sort of spotlight that I think the women's community has been doing, but we have sort of yet to translate that out into greater public policy. And how do we do that? I think is the a thing we need to really start to figure out. Continuing to elect these remarkable women to public office is, um, is of course, something I would love us to continue to do, you know, and, and stop doing. I, I was just looking at a girlfriend's uh, Facebook page of mine and her beautiful daughter and the, the comments in the on the Facebook uh, page were all things like, oh, my gosh, you better lock her up before, you know, before she's 15. Right. And so still today, you know, so I'm, I'm writing her a nice little email about how there's, there's no need to lock anybody up. And instead, you know, we need to teach your son and your daughter about gender-based violence. Right. Um, and that's there like in, in casual language, like this is dangerous. And so one of the things I think we can stop is just really calling out when we we're seeing things like that, that make us uncomfortable or that really tap into just make it sort of acceptable, right. Um, around gender-based violence. Thank you so much, Erin, for being on our show. And it was a pleasure learning about all the important work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at Q&A dot k-a-n-d-u-i-t dot com I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail dot com with your questions